podcast has bad words. <laughs> All right, we're here with Chris Gillibo, author of the new book, The Money Tree. Before we dive into our, our surprise questions, we've got some surprise questions for you today. Mm-hmm. Chris, uh, we usually start this with a, an article, a little segment we call More About Less. So obviously we're talking about financial uncertainty today. And what a time to be talking about yes. this, right? right? I've got this article here from CNBC, and the, the headline is, Coronavirus Job Losses Could Total 47 Million. Mm-hmm. Unemployment Rate May Hit 32%, mm-hmm. the Fed estimates. So I'm just going to, I'll read some stats from this, uh, just as really as a jump off point, and we'll put a link to this in the show notes as well. Um, the corona economic freeze could cost 47 million jobs and unemployment rates past 32 percent. According to the Fed, there are nearly 67 million Americans working in jobs that are at a high risk of layoffs, according to the analysis. Mm. So let's talk about this, yeah. Chris, because for, for the longest time we, we were told mm-hmm. we, it, this message was propagated all throughout <laughs> society of job security. Yeah. You know, you, you graduate high school and then eventually it was you graduate college mm-hmm. and now you're going to be set for life. Mm-hmm. And of course, we're, we're learning that's not the case. Yeah. I mean, man, those numbers are just kind of mm. mind blowing. You know, 30 percent potential unemployment. Like there's other other countries in the world have experienced that. But you know, obviously the United States has not, at least in our lifetimes, if ever. Yeah, I mean, I was just kind of letting that, letting that sink. And, and, you know, first thing is like my thoughts go out to everybody in that situation. It is a very scary time. Um, it's a scary time and a lot of people are, are, you know, just not sure what to do, not sure what to think, not sure what to do, um, kind of flailing about, which I don't mean in a critical way. It's like, that's what we tend to do. Like we go to this like fight or flight mode um, when, when we're facing with these, these like tremendous obstacles and such. And I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm curious what, you know, what your advice is to people in that situation. I think for me, I say, you know, first of all, like it, it's okay to, to accept reality. Like, let's not pretend that this is what's mm. not happening. I think that's like, that's a defense mechanism sometimes to like bury your head in the sand. And I have, I have done it, you know, multiple times. Um, but when you accept reality, it's like, it is really scary at first, but then you kind of can, can get your head around it because your head's not in the sand. Right. So it's like, this is the way it is. It is scary. We are all in it together. That's something that's, that's, you know, also unusual and interesting in the sense that all over the world, people are having the same experience. And then it's like, okay, well, what is, um, what's within our control, you know, because so much is not within our control, but constraints can be helpful. So there's so much that's not in our, in our control. We can't, you know, there's a lot of things we cannot fix. What is it that we can fix? And I think part of the answer, at least, and we can talk about this more, I don't mean to go on too much, but part of the answer is uh, in thinking differently and looking for some different solutions because, as you said, what, is, what has worked in the past, whether it has ever worked in the past or not, is arguable. But, you know, if it, whether it has or hasn't, it certainly is not working now in terms of those, uh, you know, beliefs that have been passed down and the things that are propagated throughout society. So maybe it's a good thing. And, you know, all things considered that people now understand that. Like, I don't think there's much dispute about that now. Like if you said there's not much job security, I don't think anybody would be like, there is a lot of job security out there. You just need to go into debt, you know, uh, and get your degree and then go out and get a good job because there's so many of them. Like, I don't think anybody's saying that. Mm. You know, Ryan, mm. we we... Um, we've been getting a lot of questions about when do you think things are going to turn around? And the thing Mm. that that I've been telling people is I don't think things are going to turn around. Turning around presupposes that we're going to go back to November 
of 2019. But that's not mm-hmm. going to happen. We, we're currently faced with a, a new normal. Uh, there's a sort of temporary normal in, in the midst of the pandemic and in, in the midst of, of this crisis. And uh, we're, we're going to cope with that. We're going to get through that together. But on the other side of this, there's going to be a new normal. And I don't think it's going to look a lot like the the old normal. You and I, we, we've been, even before this pandemic, walking past retail stores, even in Los Angeles, and you see a lot of them starting to go out of business. business. But now uh, everyone is functionally out of business, even if it's temporary. But I think what we're going to find is a lot of these businesses, they're not going to open their doors back up. They, a lot of the small businesses in particular, they, they were not going to be able to afford to. And we're going to see a lot of constriction in certain industries. But that doesn't mean that we're going to have uh, one-third unemployment in perpetuity, what it means is there's going to be a a giant shift. You might have fewer gyms that are open or fewer restaurants that are open, but it's going to create create new businesses and and also new opportunities for, for different types of work. And so, Chris, I'm wondering what mm-hmm. you what you think about the the, the new landscape, mm-hmm. well, this new normal. What is it? What do you see as as jobs or side hustles or or businesses that may be able to thrive mm-hmm. once we get on the the other side of this? Completely agree that we are not going back, you know, to the way things used to be. I think the more people can point that out, the better. The more people are like, yes, it's going to be different. Uh, somebody asked me actually the exact same question the other day, and this was a, a flight attendant. And he was like, when do you think travel is going to get back? And I'm like, dude, you know, I, I just want to be honest with you. Uh, I don't think it's going to be for a long time, basically. And like, if anybody gives you an answer that says like, oh, next month or whatever the relatively short period of time is, because people could be listening to this later. But the point is, it, it's not going to be a short term solution. If anybody says that, they're just trying to make you feel better. They're not actually giving you an honest answer. And honest answers are, are you know, much yeah. better. So as to you know what are the opportunities so here's the big picture thing like if we think of this as like a major disruption this is a disruption in so many ways you know we just talked about economic but it's also social cultural health obviously like that's the that's the origin or the source of it so there's this disruption and it has all these these negative adverse effects which which are quite obvious well if you think about the opposite of disruption like progress whenever there is progress we think of progress as being positive um, but progress also has negative effects. Like whenever there's an advancement in technology mm. or you know, medicine or really anything, like there's an advancement in one thing, then somebody is usually harmed. Some industry is harmed because of the advancement of something else. And so like when the car industry, automobile industry, you know, developed and the horse and buggy industry, you know, not a good thing to own stock in, right? So you always have to think about like, what are the winners right. and losers? If, if progress has negative consequences, then what are the positive consequences of disruption? And I think there's a lot there. I don't know what all the answers are. I think it's like a good topic to like brainstorm and just start thinking, okay, what are people looking for during this time? What, what do people no longer need? Or at least they, they either can't, they don't need it now, or it's not accessible to them now. Um, what, but what do they actually need? What are they longing for? And I think one of, one of the biggest answers, I'm sure there are more, but one of the answers is connection and community. And I'm sure you guys are seeing that. I think a lot of people mm. who are sharing stuff online are seeing just all these like Zoom meetings popping up, you know, like you wish you could buy stock and like sell the stock in the horse and buggy industry and buy stock in Zoom, you know, because everybody's having online meetings right. for it. My parents, you know, never used any kind of web <laughs> conferencing thing before and they're doing online yoga. You know, they're doing, they're meeting their friends for dinner virtually. Um, so there has to be a lot of answers in that connection space uh, 
just one quick example, I, I, I had talked to uh, Side Hustle School, the podcast features like all these different kind of wacky, zany stories of people who found a way to make money without quitting their job. And I talked to a woman who was a belly dancer, like a belly dance instructor. And uh, I mean, she was actually making some money doing this, right? It's not just a hobby. It was actually, you know, income generating project. So now, no joke, she's doing yeah. online. She's doing wow. online virtual belly dance classes and people are signing up for them. And so <laughs> there, there are opportunities, you know, there are a lot of stuff. There's got to be stuff out there. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm curious what you guys think about that as well. You know, I know someone who's, who's yeah, no, I totally agree with you. thriving I, right now. I, I think that, yes. Yeah, I'm seeing like uh, musicians mm-hmm. who are doing live concerts. Uh, you buy a five or ten dollar ticket. You can, you know, donate five or ten bucks to them. But this whole situation is really helping people to, yeah, find new ways to. Well, what we talked about in the minimal episode, which is add value to other people's lives, and and I think that is where you know people who are struggling with finding a new job, they can maybe start there and ask like, how can I, how can I add value to a community? What can I do? Uh, Ultimately, when you do that, people are going to want to support you. They're going to reimburse you. But the other thing that comes to mind too, so we're talking about job loss and uh, that is going to create some money problems. And I know right now, um, my sister did this not too long ago. Like she, she called her landlord and she's like, Hey, um, you know, I'm having issues. Like, is there any way I can defer a couple payments? She did this with her car loan. She did this with her utility bills. And there was a lot of, uh, corporations willing to understand what was going on and were working out deals with her. Now, I don't think this, I think it's a bandaid on a, on a larger problem. However, um, I do just want to throw that advice out there for anyone listening to this is you could totally uh, make those calls and and get a little bit of help from from these bills that you have to pay every month. I think you have to think of that as a, as a temporary reprieve too, right? And and, and yeah. I think Chris's yeah. advice really really holds true here, uh, where we we often don't have an expense problem in in some of those areas. Although quite often we do. I know I certainly used to have an expense problem, but once we get our expenses reined in, once we've developed a budget. Uh, we, we may end up with a revenue problem, especially in a time like this where there's such high unemployment. But there are people who are going to thrive in, in a situation like this. Uh, a friend of mine, her father runs a, a water filtration company. He said their business right now is better oh. than it's ever okay. been. Right. And, and it's because mm. they're inst- people are terrified that, mm-hmm. that, that water is going to run out or they're just like, I don't want to have to go to the store right mm-hmm. now to, to buy bottled water. And so they're setting up these reverse osmosis water filtration systems. I know I've got one in, in, my, uh, in my house, and uh, that way I don't have to buy bottled water. I haven't had to for a couple of years now. And, and you're, you're going to see businesses like that where they are providing a solution. They're helping solve a problem that are thriving in, in a place like this. And I'm sure if you spent 15, 20 minutes mm-hmm. brainstorming, you, you would find dozens of other examples of, of businesses that can thrive in a time like this. Yeah, that's a good one. The toilet paper yeah, business right. is booming right now. I wish I had that childhood dream I had of opening a hand sanitizer company that I just kind of gave up on because I didn't believe it was realistic. You know, I really wish I had, had followed that. Oh, emergency man. preparation. Uh, oh, here's one, got, though. Like um, emergency prep is like anything to do with like that prepping world, you know, which is a wide world, of course, and it has lots of different characters. But anything to do with, mm-hmm. you know, helping people prepare for emergencies to be more self-reliant self-sufficient that has to i mean that has to be in that category of winners go ahead 
Yeah, I, I yeah. think so. And, and especially because when yeah. most of us are amateur preppers, and that really just means we're, we're hoarders. And so we, you know, I, I had someone uh, tweet us the other day, Ryan, I think you saw this because TK, our friend TK Coleman sent us a message about it, but uh, he tweeted us, said, I bet the minimalists are really upset about all the shit they got rid of. And my response was like, yeah, oh, yeah. Th- those old basketball trophies uh-huh. and that broken waffle iron <laughs> would have really come in handy right. right now. Uh, oh, and by the yeah, way, in my collection of GQ magazines Ooh. from 2003, like I'm really missing those right now. That's not uh, pr- being yeah. prepared. That That is hoarding. That is holding on to things because we have an inability to let go. But Ryan and I have always been advocates mm. for being prepared. And one of the best ways to be prepared is to get rid of the, the excess yeah. stuff, the things that don't matter. So we have more space and more time and more resources for what does matter what is important and also Mm -hmm. i think the the sort of mental preparedness is equally important here Mm -hmm. you realize how little you need in a time like this but you still need the Mm -hmm. right things and so if you can help people get prepared in that way so in 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 a weird way ryan you and i as the minimalists we are a different kind of prepper we we are we are mentally prepared for even uh something as as drastic as a pandemic I love that perspective, man, because it is true. Like I have never been more grateful for living a simple life than I am right now. And it's it's almost like, you know, 10 years ago, uh, there was some kind of, you know, magical force that put us into this to get us ready for this moment. And uh, yeah, it's I mean, not having debt, um, not having a lot of things. And I'll tell you, too, um, I was talking to a minimalist buddy of mine and he was saying how at first he started kind of panicking a little bit because he did think he's like, oh man, like I, I used to stock up on toilet paper more. I, you know, I used to stock up on food more. But then when him and his wife started going through all their belongings, he was like, we actually, even as minimalists, he's like, we still had plenty of things. And that's because minimalists, they bring into their lives what is important. They don't, they don't just get rid of things for the sake of it. And, and yeah, it's, it's, uh, I think it's a great lifestyle to be living right now um, because yeah, it totally has helped us mentally prepared. All right. Well, it looks like podcast Sean has some surprise questions for us today. April asks, what can these uncertain times tell us about minimalism? Well, Ryan, I think you and I were were sort of talking about that uh, a moment ago, but uh, minimalism is a way for us to use our resources more intentionally. So if you're if you're afraid of that word, if it seems too stark or too austere for you, then there are other words. You can just say intentionalism or living within your means-ism. And uh, for us, it's about being deliberate with the few resources we have. Or if you have a lot of resources, then that's great too. You still want to be deliberate with the uh, vast amount of resources you have so that you can contribute beyond yourself in a meaningful way. Now, Chris, we're in uh, an uncertain time right now, but in some ways, yeah. that might be the best time to start to question everything because it almost forces us to mm-hmm. start questioning the, the position we've put ourselves yeah. in. You know, we were talking earlier about how sometimes mm-hmm. people don't make changes until they're, until they're forced, you know. And, I, and I, I've had so many, uh, you know, stories and emails from people who have been laid off, not necessarily like in this immediate situation, but just in the past. And when they were laid off, it was, you know, really difficult and they were afraid. And sometimes it was even traumatic. And later they end up starting something or, or moving into something that they never would have found before. And they say, oh, I'm so glad that happened. You know, I'm so glad that that thing happened because what I'm doing now is better. 
Um, but I wouldn't have actually, if I hadn't been pushed, I wouldn't have made the leap is the quote that I've heard before. And so I think, think now, you know, all of a sudden, you know, a lot of people, you know, are being pushed or nudged at least. And what's different is that it's happening to a lot of people all at once. Um, and so when it happens to just you, it's, it's maybe more scary than when it's more relatable with other people. So you have the support, or at least you know there's a community of people out there all experiencing the same thing. Um, but now this is your opportunity. This is your chance. Like you have to see it as an opportunity because that's, that's all you can do. You can't change the circumstances. Like I, when I, when I say that I have to be careful cause I want to, I'm not trying to say there's a silver lining. Like I'm not like if we could all push a magic button, you know, and end the pandemic, we would, but because we can't, all we can do is say, you know, what else can we do? How can I use this, you know, this, this time to come out of it better than I was before? And I think everybody has to, to answer that. Not just, not just anybody in the desperate situation or the one who needs to make the big change, but even like I try to live intentionally as well. Like I've tried to live by a lot of the values that, got, that you guys have been so articulate about over the years. But, you know, I think for us, for the, you know, the three of us and anybody else listening who might consider themselves like, further on or something, I think we also have to ask that same question. Like, what does the opportunity mean for us? How are we going to change through this process? Yeah, I love how you accent the point that we're, we're, we're in this together. Like, everyone is going through the same thing. And so if, there's, if there was ever a time to take some type of risk, like, now would be the time to do it. Because, you know, people are, uh, they're all experiencing the same thing. So why not, why not try something, you know, outside the box? It looks like Juju has a question for us, Ryan. Everyone talks about money IQ, but what about money EQ? What is your emotional intelligence mm. around money? Doesn't that play a factor too? I, I think it absolutely does. Um, I mean, going back just to that, the, the question we had in the minimal episode where we were kind of giving the advice, I think it was to Kristen to say, uh, or maybe it was Tony to say, hey, like, don't try and look at something that you can do just to make money. If, if you're living your life just to make money, like that is going to, it's going to lead to a, a, a dead end. Um, so yeah, I think, I think the, the, uh, uh, the thoughts we have around money certainly shape our lives and it helps us or hurts us to, uh, yeah, to move forward. Chris, there's a lot yeah. of anxiety around mm. money right now. I mean, there, there, but mm. of course, there's always a lot of anxiety around money. It's the reason that we, we get into debt. We compare ourselves to other people. We strive to be, uh, to, to, to be in the same car or the same house or the same neighborhood or have the same level of exclusivity as everyone mm. else. Although, of course, we, we, can't, we can't buy our way yeah. to happiness. Uh, money has some correlation mm. between... Uh, b- between our happiness levels and and um, uh, the, the amount of money that we make, although uh, I, I often disagree with that statistic because I think happiness is is rather ephemeral, and, and mm-hmm. you in fact articulate this in, in your book, uh, the happiness mm-hmm. of pursuit, and and so maybe talk a little bit about the the anxiety around money, but also the the happiness mm-hmm. of pursuit as opposed to trying to get happy by making a certain amount of yeah, money. I do think there is, um, this, is, this could be a good conversation to have at some point now or later, but I think there is a baseline. I do think, you know, for, for people who are like, you know, truly in poverty or whatever the poverty line is, or I mean, that could be different things for different people. You know, there's a point in which you really do feel, you know, legitimately anxious and worried uh, about, you know, being able to provide for your family or something. And I think that is, you know, a very scary thing. And, you know, we should try to get people out of that situation as quickly as possible, you know, whether it's through their own efforts or through some 
public support, private support, whatever it is. Um, but then, you know, you're right once you get to like, okay, maybe I'm you know, not well off. I could even be poor, uh, but I'm not worried about, you know, if I can buy medicine for my kid or, you know, food or whatever. I think that that's when, that's when you start to have like status anxiety starts to creep in. And I would say, you know, I, I, I have been poor. I've been pretty well off and status anxiety all, will always increase. Like it never gets better. I think people often think like if I get to the next rung, if I'm making X dollars, this is my salary. All I have to do is make, you know, 20% more or whatever it is. And then I will feel better. And you might for a little bit. You know, like for, for a very brief period, it's, it's, I guess it's kind of like a drug or something, you know, like mm -hmm. you feel good, but then you feel worse because, oh, but somebody else has, you know, 20% more than this and then 100% more and it, it never ends, you know. And so I think it's, it's, I, it ultimately relates to comparison. This anxiety, you know, is like comparison and uh, mm -hmm. as long as you are looking to somebody else for your, your benchmark or your metric of, of success and well-being, then you will ultimately be unhappy to go back to that point about happiness and I don't always know what happiness is, um, but, you know, unhappiness is certainly, you know, comparing yourself to others or wanting more, you know, or again, trying to control something that you can't. So that whole concept of happiness of pursuit was for me, it was like, well, and for a lot of other people too, I think um, whether you call it happiness or, you know, purpose, I kind of like that word better because you can be, you can be struggling and you can be going through sadness and even depression or anxiety, but still feel purposeful, like still feel like you're doing something important and you're doing something that matters and you're on a journey and you might have setbacks, you might be unhappy, but you, you know, you're still doing something meaningful. So for me, it was, it was through embracing challenge, like the value of challenge. And for my, me, my strategy or my iteration of it was to go to every country in the world, take on this project of, you know, traveling for 11 years, but other people can find something else. What is challenging for you? Maybe there's, that's kind of a, a bit of a balm or a relief for some of that anxiety. Like, what are you trying to work toward for purpose, not just for money? Yeah, I mean, I, I think when people, you know, when they try to shape their attitude with money, it should really be about like, you know, what is that money going to do for you? I mean, viewing money as a tool, and it is an important tool in a lot of ways, like you said, Chris, with medication, mm -hmm. health insurance, uh, having a roof over your head, pr providing yourself with food. Those are important things, but that is mm -hmm. what money is. It's a tool, and money solves our money problems. And if you've got all the money in the world, well, yeah, maybe you've solved your money problems, but there's still a whole slew of problems that you're going to have. So really it's about, you know, how we deal with our problems in, in general. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tool. And that's, I think, I think how we should, we should view it. Yeah, uh, we got a question from the, Tal. The future, oh, I, I, think, I think the future doesn't produce our anxiety. Mm -hmm. I think our attempt yeah. to control the future does. And, and mm -hmm. right now, because there's so much uncertainty, what, what do we do when we have a lot of uncertainty, when we are effectively drowning? We, we flail even more. We grasp for things that don't exist even more. But the, the way to get out of that drowning isn't to, to flail. It's to try to swim to the surface as, as calmly as possible. And, and I think there are certainly some, some tools, some mechanisms that we, we can... Uh, institute to to do that. I mean, whether it's it's meditation and mindfulness, or it's just simply logging off of the internet, uh, spending you know, allocating a certain amount of time on the internet, checking the news, 
two times a week instead of two times an hour might make a whole lot more sense. It might mean slowing down. It might mean reading books. It might mean taking walks away from people out in nature, getting in the sun. There are a lot of things that we can do where we're not trying to control the future anymore. We are simply controlling our present moment because that's all that we have anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, We got a question from Tall Poppy. What event or person most shaped your relationship hmm. to money? That's a great question. Hmm. For me personally, I mean, there, there's no question it was, well, there, I actually have two people. Uh, Dave Ramsey with mm-hmm. respect to debt. Mm-hmm. And um, he, you know, just his, his simple money advice, which works for anyone, whether you're making $20,000 a year or if you were like me making $200,000 a year, but I was still broke. Uh, he has some very simple advice that isn't easy advice. You actually have to uh, put in work to pay off debt. You have to live very differently if you want to get out of debt. So that, that shaped me quite a bit. Also, uh, our friend and my mentor, Carl, uh, Carl Widener, who is, uh, Ryan and I both worked with him back in our telecom days, and he once told me, don't ask a man who makes $20,000 a year, how to make $100,000 a year. <laughs> yeah. D- Josh, I got to say it was you, brother. You were the one who really helped me shape. I mean, you and Dave Ramsey, or, or I guess maybe uh, Dave Ramsey through you <laughs> is what really helped me. But I remember us having a conversation where on the whiteboard, you just helped label out exactly you know, where the money's coming in and where it should be going out. And yeah, I'm really grateful that uh, you sat down and had that conversation with me because I've been following that for the last, you know, eight, nine years. And um, it's, it's really helped me to not have so much stress around money. What about you, Chris? Chris who's who's influenced you the most? Your- yeah, I was going to say um, my dad, I think. I was actually trying to think about it for a while. I was like, who is it? But Probably my dad. And I don't think he ever like said, Chris, here's some money lessons. You know, it was just kind of by, you know, following along. I was thinking of some examples. So I actually lived apart from him for about three years uh, from the time I was like six, seven, and eight. I was in the Philippines uh, with my mom and stepdad. And so my dad was back in the States and and he would write letters. I mean, this was like how it worked back then. You write letters. And he would send me an allowance of a dollar a week. And at some point I got this, this idea to like ask, I was like, Dad, what if, what if you spent sent two dollars and I use that extra dollar to like buy something? I forgot how I phrased it, but it was like buy something for you or something like that. Um, and he was like, that's a good idea. And he started sending two dollars, but I don't know if I ever actually bought anything for him. So maybe that was like an early entrepreneurial, you know, <laughs> venture. But the other, the story I was thinking about was um, <laughs> so when I was actually back, you know, in the states with him. Remember this example? I think he just like threw this threw this out like offhand, but it still remains with me. You know, he, he was actually pretty poor for a while and like child support for me and all kinds of stuff. And, you know, our, our big night out would be to go to Burger King. And he was telling me like he had this car that kept breaking down, you know, all the time. It's like an old van, actually, an old van that kept breaking down. And he said some of the guys at his work you know, basically had told him they're like, we ran the numbers and it would actually be more affordable for you to buy a Mercedes in the long term, you know, because of the maintenance, they had this, like, they were engineers, they were into this whole thing, you know, like, so it's better for you to buy a Mercedes than to have this old van that keeps breaking down. And he said, you know, his response is that that's great, but there's a problem, you know, there's a small problem with that, which is I can't buy a Mercedes, you know, right now. 
And so I, I think of that in, in the, the no debt context. It's like what we were talking earlier about a mortgage. And like some people say that, oh, this is a good, this is a good debt to have because, you know, this reason, this reason, this reason. But is it really? You know, so my dad never bought a Mercedes. And I, th I thought about that a right. lot. It's like just because something might make sense for somebody else or it makes sense on some theoretical model, it's not necessarily how it applies in, in the real world. And so you have to think about how it applies to your situation. Right, because the, the, yeah. those models don't take in consideration the, the sort of mental costs mm -hmm. of a lot of these things as well. The, there's a particular weight that's involved with, with having a, mm -hmm. a car payment or a mortgage payment. Uh, and it's not that I'm, I'm diametrically opposed to having a mortgage. It's just that I, I'm opposed to having that debt if I mm -hmm. could otherwise pay it off. If I had a $200,000 mortgage, but I had $200,000 cash in the bank, I'd rather put that money toward the mortgage and, and, and thus not have that debt and have the, the, all the associated costs, the, the weight of, of that debt. Hey, I, I was just talking to our mutual friend, oh, yeah. uh, Julian Smith, yesterday. Yeah, I've known him for Chris, a long you time. Julian, I, don't you? Smith, I knew him for probably the same time I've known you guys for 10 years. Yeah, yeah, he he's up at you know he's the CEO mm -hmm. of a company called Breather now, but he's the author of, of quite a few books, most notably a book called The Flinch. And uh, we we were just talking yesterday. He was asking how things are going out here, and I was asking him how things are going up in, in Montreal. And uh, I said, you know, in a weird way, it feels like I've spent the last twelve years preparing for this pandemic without even knowing it. And he said, I, I think you have. He goes, you, you, your cost of living is, is relatively low, isn't it? And I said, yeah, my, my only expenses right now are food, rent, and, and utilities. And he goes, oh, you don't even have a car. I said, oh, no, I have a car. I just don't have a car payment. And it's funny that, that we often we, we mistake one for the other, right? It's like you, you should be able to have a car without having a, a car payment. If we, we have a car payment, we're, 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 doing, it, we're doing it wrong. And, and so, in a weird way, Ryan and I have spent the last decade making sure that our expenses are relatively low on the personal side. I mean, obviously our business has expenses. We employ quite a few people. But on, on the personal side, trying to keep that as low as possible so that in a time like this where things have to tighten up or, or we may even have to dip into our emergency fund because of a true emergency that's going on, it gives me a cushion to not, to not feel anxious and, and wonder like, oh my gosh, am I going to be able to, to pay rent this month? Well, um, 10 years ago, that would have been a, a big, a big worry of mine. And now it's less of a worry because I've, I've spent the last decade sort of preparing for, for something like this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we got a question from Steve here. Uh, this is interesting. So what's your 401k advice in these times? Aggressive, play it safe. Don't look at it, forget about it, etc. That's well, let me just tell you this. You, you, haven't, you haven't lost money in your 401k unless you cash out of your 401k. Amen. Uh, right now, it's a, bunch, it's a bunch of zeros and ones. Now is mm -hmm. actually the worst time for you to, to cash out of a retirement account for, for several reasons. A 401k or like a SEP IRA or a traditional uh, or Roth IRA, th these are 59 and a half accounts, which means if you are younger than 59 and a half and you withdraw money from it, not only are you going to pay taxes on that money, you're also going to pay a penalty for early withdrawal. And so it's like an additional tax. It's almost like getting a luxury tax. Uh, on this. And now is the absolute worst time. In fact, 
if you have a lot of extra cash sitting on the sidelines, now is a better time to, to put more money into your 401k or your 403b or your, your SEP IRA. And, and, and the reason being is you make money when you buy low and sell high. Right now, you'd be mm-hmm. selling low, and, and uh, you, you're just in for a world of hurt. You, these accounts aren't meant to be touched until retirement anyway. That's why they're, they're set up the way that they are. And so withdrawing money from a 401k is always a bad idea if you're pre-retirement, but it's an especially bad idea in a, in a down market. Nope, I think that Chris, do you have anything to add to that? I'm good with that. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think that, uh, yeah, I, I agree with you too, Josh. Um, if you can't afford it right now, yes, put, put some money in. I mean, the, the stock market is on sale right now. I mean, that is, I mean, that's Warren Buffett's strategy. And, you know, uh, he is a rich guy, so I would look to him for some advice. But l- let's say, you know, you, don't, you can't afford it right now and you do have a 401k. Like, I do, he's, you know, the last uh, or second to last question he asks here is, is, is don't look at it. And I would say, yeah, like actually right now, if you can't afford to put anything into your 401k because of these trying times, yeah, don't look at it right now because it is just going to add another stress. Uh, you know, look at it when, when this thing, you know, it's six months after this thing starts to, to, to come back around. Um, like we said, no, nothing's going to go back to completely normal. Um, but I think that, yes, uh, the market will come back and it's probably something that we shouldn't focus on too much right now. Ryan, you, you're, um, your Warren Buffett thing. Oh, go ahead. Hold on. Your Warren Buffett yeah, go uh, comment made me, made me think of one of his most popular quotes, which is, uh, I think it's something like, be fearful, be, be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. Mm. And, and right now, uh, and I think what he means by that, he's not obviously, he's not being Gordon Gecko and greed is good sort of thing. But well, what he's trying to say is, now is a time where where there may even be an opportunity. So if you can contribute more to a retirement account right now, especially places like 401, if you're lucky enough to have a 401k, that means your employer likely matches a, a percentage of it. And that's a really good place to be in. That's, that's basically free money. And, and so Ryan and I contribute 15% of, at least 15% of our income to a, a SEP IRA every year. And um, if we get an opportunity, we even try to max it out. And, and so that, that, that is, oh, you know, SEP IRA is just, a, it's basically our 401k. We're, we're self-employed. So uh, if you're looking for some retirement advice as well, uh, Ryan and I have an entire essay on our website about retirement and, and how exactly how we allocate our, our funds uh, specifically. It's just theminimalists.com slash retirement. And we can put a link to that in the show notes as well. Yeah. Ryan, we got another question here. Yes, uh, Saibin writes in, how do you work out which problem you can solve best for others? How do you start your hustle with hope in an environment of fear? Hmm. Chris, I would love to see what you think about this because, again, I think you're the master of inspiring people on how to think a little yeah. bit differently and, and how to... Such a thought, thoughtful question. Yeah. Can you read the first part of the question one more time? Yeah. How do you work out mm. which problem you can solve okay, best for others? Okay, and I think you said others? something about providing hope in a time of fear. How do you do it? Um, I think the second part yeah. is, um, yeah. I mean, that hope is what people want in a time of fear. So I don't think that is, that is difficult. If you can have some legitimate claim to hope, like, hey, you know, whatever it is that you're anxious about, I actually have a real solution, um, you know, then that is powerful. Um, as for which problem to solve, 
I'm not sure that's any different than the question of like, I've got a bunch of ideas. I've got a bunch of small business ideas or ideas for anything in life, really. And I can't decide which one to do now. Um, you know, because whether it's this season or another season, we all deal with like this indecisiveness, overwhelm, procrastination, you know, life deferral is kind of what I call it sometimes when you're like, I'm, re- I'm doing a lot of research. You know, like research is like a code word for deferral, right? Research is a code word for avoidance. You know, <laughs> like I'm doing research. I'm going to go to grad school. That's a great yes. way to, to avoid oh, your yeah. life for three years, you know, or however many years it is. Right. Like I can't make a, yeah. a decision. So <laughs> here's what I'm going to do. And that, so many people do that. You know, like it's a great strategy if you want to not think about what you yeah. really want to get out of life. So if you're trying, if you've got all these ideas, um, I think, you know, there are some different models we can talk about. Like I have an exercise like called the decision making matrix, which I'm happy to give for free and it can be on the notes or whatever. But um, essentially it's like you're, you're ranking different criteria. What is the most feasible right now? Uh, assuming my goal is to make money. If it's a side hustle, then what has the most profit potential? Um, you know, what is timely or urgent at the moment? Um, and what am I most excited about? I think that's important too. Like, what am I most motivated to do? And if you can find some overlap there, then that's what you want to do, you know? And sometimes there could be a season where mm. one of those variables is more important than the other. And like if it is a time where you're, you are desperate for cash or whatever, then you're like, that. this is the idea I'm going to pursue that has the most profit potential, even if I'm not as excited about it, uh, because I value that thing, you know, over whatever else. Um, and if you're a little bit more secure, then it's like, I need to find something that I'm actually very, you know, motivated to do. But ultimately, like when you come through that analysis or anybody else's, you know, maybe the minimalists have, have one too. Uh, I think it, the, you know, you still come to a point of like, I have to make a decision and people still get stuck. So I've learned whenever I try to teach this is like, okay, here's the, here's the model. But in the end, if you're still indecisive, you really just need to flip a coin or something because remaining stuck is not going to help Mm. you at all. It's going to be better to make the wrong decision and, you know, find out a little bit later, oh, that wasn't the right one. I'll try something else than to just kind of remain in that place of like, quote unquote, research. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, that's what I tell people too. It's like, if you have five really good ideas, then put them in a hat and, and pick one out. Because really, what I want to encourage Saibin to do here is be in an, explore, in an exploratory stage. The thing that you pick doesn't have to be the end-all, be-all, but you yeah. do have to start somewhere. And, you know, we can talk about drudging through the drudgery and, and, and you know, when it's appropriate to move on to something else. But ultimately, you know, uh, Saibin needs to look at his ideas right now as an exploratory stage pick one to start working on and, and, and see how it makes him feel and where it goes. You know, I, I think there's, there are a couple things I'd like to point out. One is, uh, Chris is right. The, all of the old problems probably still exist, right? And, and however, we're also in, in a place where there are new problems that yeah. exist now too. And so if you're looking at, at helping, you look, if you want to do something that helps people solve problems, you've now been mm-hmm. given a greater inventory of right. problems with which you can help. And, and, and so when you think about it that way, and it could be as simple as, well, people are having trouble getting food right now. Well, a food delivery service, uh, there are plenty of them out there. So you could temporarily, especially if you're, you're short on cash, go work for a place like a Postmates or an Uber Eats, understanding there are some potential health risks in, in, involved in any of that. Uh, and so just as a caveat there. But, but longer term, what kind of business can you do on your own that would, would help solve a need like that. And then also Chris brings up a point about making decisions. And it reminds me of this, uh, this thing that this essay that we wrote on the website, 
uh, called The Four Paths. And it basically talks about how uh, whenever we fail to, to make a decision, we, we fail to grow. And a lot of us, we will procrastinate, right? And, and there, there actually are four sort of choices when we, when we reach a fork in the road. There's the right path, the wrong path, the left path, and no path. And so the right path is uh, the, the glaring right decision. Sometimes we get to a fork in the road and we are like, ah, oh, of course, there's a, a, a wrong way to go and there's a right way to go. Uh, it's obvious to everyone, right? And whenever this is the case, you want to seize the opportunity. You want to take the right path. Of course, the opposite of that is the wrong path. There are some paths that are, that are just blatantly incorrect. And they have all these unnecessary obstacles and, and venomous creatures on them. And, and, and we want to avoid those routes, even though sometimes they might even seem enticing. They're, they're pleasurable routes quite often. And we, we can get tantalized by, by the, the wrong path, but we know that we should avoid it. Uh, the, the, the third path is the left path. You know, sometimes there's a fork in the road and there are two equally viable options. And that's when that paralysis uh, really sets in that Chris is talking about. You're like, I don't know if I should take the right path or the left path uh, because they're both correct paths. The right path is right, but so is the left path. And, and, and so if you can't tell which is the most correct, it's important to, to simply just, just, just pick either path. Make, it, make a decision. Use all the available relevant information and, and, and keep moving forward down either path. And, and even if you end up picking the wrong path in that scenario, you, you, will, you tend to grow from, mm. from the failure, right? Mm. And then the final path is no, is no path. Uh, and, and it's when, we, uh, when we're when we faced with two unknown paths, right, the left and the right, we often freeze. And, and we have all this indecision. And, and then we're stuck there at that fork in the road with all that indecision. And I think that's the worst option of all. Mm. Not deciding is always a bad decision. And so when, when you think about it that way, it's, 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 about, it's about picking a path. Sometimes you know they're right, sometimes you won't, but, but moving forward is going, to, is going to help you out even in these times. I of like that model. I, yeah. I, I like that. No, I, I love that, one thing to, um, I like, I'm going to go read that article because that's very helpful to me. I always wanted to add something to what Ryan was saying about the hat thing. The other thing you can do is like when you have the hat, you have your ideas in the hat or whatever it is you're trying to decide between right before you like pull out the, you know, the random slip of paper, ask yourself if there's something that you're wishing for. Like, are you actually hoping that it's going to say one thing? Right. Mm. And if it does, then that's your answer. You know, you don't have to uh, pull You don't, you can just like mm. discard that whole exercise because you've just kind of realized what you're you know, subconsciously or you know, psychologically, whatever it is, you know, wishing for. So maybe there's an answer that you're just kind of blocking or you're like, you know, it's right, but you're scared to do it perhaps. Uh, and so you come up with these other ideas, you know, that are kind of like, you know, around the surface uh, of what you actually need to do. Totally. Totally. So true. Yeah. And I like what you were saying, Josh, about if you choose the wrong path, it's okay. Like, and, and I think that's what makes people choose no path is they're scared about being wrong and they're scared about failing. But you know, that's, that's what makes us who we are. I mean, no one, no one has gone through life without failing a little bit. So yeah, uh, I, I hope, I hope we can help people alleviate, uh, that fear of failing. Luke's got a question. Is it possible to add value to others' lives through selling merchandise? What do you think, Josh? Should we, should we start selling minimalist t-shirts? <laughs> I was thinking keychains and lighters. Um, you, you know, 
what's what's funny about about a question like this is, is uh, it presupposes as though there's right. something wrong with uh-huh. material possessions. And Ryan and I are not against material possessions. We're against mm-hmm. mindless consumption. In fact, we all need some stuff. And so, yes, it's especially possible to create material items, material mm-hmm. goods that add immense value to people's lives. Are the things in our lives, we shouldn't love them, but we should get some sort of use out of them. They should serve a purpose or bring us joy. They should augment or enhance our experience of life. And Luke, if you mm-hmm. can create something that does that, that actually helps people then you are adding value to their lives. And I say bravo to you because we've got too much junk out there anyway. So if you're just wanting to create junk, then mm-hmm. no, it, it, I, would, I would advise against that. But you know, what do we say? Good businesses make money. Great businesses make a difference. And you can do that with, uh, mm-hmm. with merchandise for sure. Oh, I mean, absolutely Chris, agree. What do you think? I was thinking earlier we were talking about uh, you know, what are the opportunities in this time, you know, so we say that there's opportunity in the time of uncertainty. What does that look like on a practical level? I mean, another industry is like home exercise equipment, right? I mean, everybody's exercising at home. And so, mm-hmm. I mean, there's there are people selling various, you know, tools and resources to help with that. That can that, you know, those can be virtual classes or whatever, but they can involve, you know, items or merchandise that comes to your home. I mean, that's that's needed and helpful and is making people's lives better. And if you're doing it through a commerce model, then you're profiting. So I think that is, it's, you know, bravo to you, as Josh said. Yeah, this reminds me of an event Josh and I were at in this, he's probably 18 years old, 19 years old. He's just getting ready to graduate high school or had just graduated. And he's like, you know, I'm an engineer and I love to make things. He's like, but I'm a minimalist and I feel really guilty about, you know, wanting to make things to sell. And he was like, what would your advice be? And I'm like, dude, you can, you know, you can totally make merchandise and sell it. Like, think about if someone could make a, a, a biodegradable cell phone. Like, the, the question isn't, you know, whether you should or shouldn't make stuff. It's, yeah, what are you making? Um, and, you know, also I was going to point out, too, like, I love to snowboard. So, like, I'm going to go buy a snowboard. Like, Josh, he would not go buy a snowboard. Mm-hmm. So that isn't going to add value to his life. But I would totally feel good if I knew how to even, you know, make snowboards. I would be happy to put those out into the world because I know how much joy I get out of it. And I'm sure other people will get joy out of it, too. So, so yes, Luke, think about what the things that you get true joy out of, the things that even help you uh, create experiences in your life. And, and how, can you, how can you transfer that to other people? Luke, maybe you can invent something that will keep me from touching my face 30 yeah, times. Yeah, we all need that. <laughs> huge, Just huge cut off your hands, Josh. <laughs> Never realized how much I touched my face. Uh, that Never realized spikes it until on them, now. Maybe? It's like, <laughs> yeah. I just cut my hands off, see? <laughs> yeah, it, isn't it fascinating, Chris? Like it, when, when something like this comes to the forefront, I know mm-hmm. I, was, I must have been touching my face even right. more before, but it, now it just feels like well, as soon mm-hmm. as we bring attention to that thing, uh, and I think that th- this is like a perfect metaphor for mm-hmm. the discontent yeah. that we often experience <laughs> in the career path. You, you were talking about this early on, but but, but we often we, you know we're we're comfortable and we we think we're happy with the career for a while, but then all of a sudden it becomes the source of mm-hmm. of our discontent. And as we shine the spotlight on it, man, the the flaws become mm-hmm. become glaring, and you realize mm-hmm. like oh, th- there is not real contentment here. The only reason I'm sticking around is is from the the fear mm-hmm. of the discomfort of of making some sort of change yeah, or doing really something else. Really, that discomfort else. is your friend. You know, comfort is the enemy of change, essentially. Um, I mean, the discomfort is what's actually going to, to be your motivator to make the change. So welcome it, welcome it in, let it shine the light on your situation, whatever you're doing. 
I love that podcast, Sean. You can, <laughs> you can tweet that. That's that's awesome. Thanks, advice. podcast, Sean. <laughs> All right, Amanda writes in. How do I break ties with a job to which I feel an emotional attachment? So how do I break ties with a job to which I feel an emotional attachment? Mm. I'm trying to think of a job I've had before where I've had like an emotional attachment. Um, I know when I was working for my father, uh, painting and hanging wallpaper, I had this grandiose plan of taking over the family business and, you know, making it better than what it was and... Um, there was an emotional attachment to it, but there was a certain point where um, I had to put other things ahead of mm-hmm. that emotional attachment. Uh, of, of course, that's where that's what led me to my corporate career. So uh, I wouldn't <laughs> say that was the best decision I ever made in my life. But it was hard to leave that job. Yeah, but I just sometimes, remember, go ahead, Josh. Sometimes we can go from one you know, bad situation to another because we make a rash decision, right? Mm-hmm. And, and maybe if I were to change around this question from Amanda a little bit, uh, instead of saying emotional attachment, I would say uh, identity. And, and, mm. and sometimes our, our identity gets wrapped up in that title on our business card. In fact, Chris, you, you uh-huh. know this all too well. When someone introduces themselves to you, one of the first questions they ask you is, right. what do you do? And it, when you think about it, it's a really expansive yeah. question. It's like, well, I, I right. drink water. I right. like long walks on the beach. <laughs> what we're really saying is, where do you work? What's your job title mm-hmm. so I can compare you to yeah. me on the socioeconomic ladder? Uh, of course, we would never posit mm-hmm. the question that way because we would sound like a total jerk. And, and we don't, I don't think we mean anything mm-hmm. malicious by it. We've yeah. been sort of acculturated to ask that question and then acculturated mm-hmm. to identify what we do as a vocation, as who we are as mm-hmm. a person. And anytime we identify our vocation as who we are as a person. Of course, there's going to be some sort of emotional attachment. And that can be good if what you're doing is is you know, helping make your corner of the world better, if you're serving the greater good. That's a, a good kind of attachment. But when, we're, but when we're attached to something that is that is negative in our life, but we're attached to it so we can't let go... Uh, that that tends yeah. to become a problem, yeah. doesn't it, Chris? Uh, I mean, so picking up on what you just said, uh, I'm I'm going to assume. Um, I'm, I'm sorry. What was the the questioner's name? Was it Amanda? Amanda. Yeah. So sorry, Amanda. Amanda. Uh, Amanda yeah. I'm going to assume that your emotional attachment is a positive one, uh, because as Josh just said, it can be negative. People have emotional attachments in relationships, uh, you know, that are that are negative, um, but it's hard to leave, you know, for whatever reason. So let's let's assume it's positive. Let's assume it's a really great job. I think that you know the best time to leave the greatest job in the world is, is while it's still the greatest job in the world, like before it changes, because, because things do mm. usually change. And mm. I haven't had a lot of jobs like always working for myself, but I was an aid worker for several years in West Africa. It was probably like the overall number one experience in my life. If I had to pick one thing, it was those years and, and everything I learned there. And um, the reason why I left is because I noticed that most people who were in that environment for a long time eventually they, they kind of became bitter and I understood why, like I could see it, you know, I could say, okay, I understand there's a, there's a lot of hardship here and not a, you know, some positive experiences, but there's also some negative stuff. So I can see why it happens, but I don't want that to happen to me. Like I don't actually want to become a, a cynic. And so I think, so I did four years there basically. And it was in the, in the fourth year that I kind of started to notice a change. It wasn't like a big change, but I could just see it coming. And I was like, this is, I don't want to be here unless I'm giving a hundred percent. If I'm giving like 90%, that's not good enough. 
And so that's when I made the decision to leave. And for me, it was like the best job in the world and the right time to leave the best job is like, you know, while it still is, but you know that something might change in the future. And so probably the whole reason Amanda is asking this question is because yes, she has the emotional attachment, but she also has a yearning for something else. So I think if she ignores that yearning, then there's going to be a cost to that too. Chris, that story makes me think of uh, uh, Josh. He talks a lot about graduating from a situation or uh, divorcing mm. a situation. And, uh, you know, the difference is, is when you graduate, it's a good thing. You're glad that you're, you got the experience and you move on. Or when you divorce something, it usually ends uh, with, a, mm. with a lot of negative emotions. And what it sounds like to me is like you, you graduated uh, from, mm. from that job. And, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe it's time for Amanda mm. to graduate. I love that from, analogy. That's the great. job she has. Yeah, before it becomes yeah. toxic too, right? Because mm. at some point, if I would have using the gra- extending the graduation analogy a bit f- further, it, if I would have stayed in high school for a fifth year, right. or a sixth year, and a seventh year, at some point, it's like okay, now <laughs> now I have such negative emotional attachment to this thing. I no longer am I graduate. I'm just going to drop mm-hmm. out. I'm going to to get divorced from high school as opposed to to graduating from it. Mm-hmm. Well, Chris, I, I want to encourage folks listening to this to uh, do a few things. I want them to check out your podcast. It is called Side Hustle School, and I want them to check out your new book as well. It is called The Money Tree. Is there anywhere else where we should send folks to, uh, to check out your work? No, that's wonderful. Uh, they can go to moneytreebook.com, or, of course, uh, it's available wherever books are sold. Uh, my website is chrisgillibo.com. All right, we'll Chris, put a link you to are an amazing person, man. Yeah, you're an yeah, amazing human being, you. and the work you do the work you do is important, man. And we really you guys appreciate are awesome. It. You're doing such important work too. Definitely want to acknowledge you for doing. Yeah, something I feel important. I'm so thankful that our lives have <laughs> uh, you know kind of intersected all these years, and uh, it's just really fun to see what you're doing too. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, before before we wrap up, um, WDS. I, I assume it is postponed for yes. a, a period of time since everything is postponed <laughs> for a, tier, a period of time. So WDS mm-hmm. is the World Domination Summit. It is uh, Chris's, uh, I mm-hmm. think this is the, the tenth year. Well, I guess uh, technically it'll be ten point five. We're gonna we're gonna call it ten point five. Yes, right? go ahead. <laughs> I love it. Okay. Uh, so so let, uh, let's sure. talk a little bit about WDS. And is this uh, this is the uh, last year? Yes. Is that correct? Well, it was going to be the last year, and it's still like when we are able to do the event, it will be the finale. Um, but like so many other things in, in life, uh, like your tour, my tour, et cetera, we have had to make that decision to postpone. Uh, the keyword is postpone, not canceled. Uh, I did commit to everybody, uh, you know, we're going to see this through, like we're not going to replace it with a virtual event. Like I like virtual events for lots of reasons, but I also really believe in the value of bringing people together in person as I know you guys do as well. Uh, so we are, uh, we are moving WDS 2020 to, uh, June of 2021. Basically, so um, the good news is for everybody who is, uh, you know, sad about WDS ending and wanting it to go on for another year. Now they get another year, effectively. <laughs> That's great. You know, Ryan yeah, and I were amazing. at the very first one, and I think we were. Yeah, at the you guys first need to come back for the finale. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to getting back. Yeah, for sure. We we, we definitely have to get back. It is. Uh, it's amazing what you've done with it. I mean, I remember it started that first year mm-hmm. was what 500 people, and and now it's just. 
many thousands and it has transformed. And uh, I've I connected with a lot of people those first few years that awesome, I'm still man. really good friends with Very cool. uh, a decade later. And so thank you for providing that platform and that opportunity to meet some really yeah. amazing people. They might not all be like-minded, but mm. they all were mm-hmm. open-minded. And uh, I found a lot of people who, who cool. I still connect with today. Yeah. Chris, I'm curious, what would you... Like, what would your elevator pitch be for uh, World Domination Summit? Like, for me, if I had to describe it to someone, I would just say it is, you know, uh, a few days filled mm-hmm. with inspiration. Um, but, but how would you Man, describe this that is to a problem. This has been a problem it. for 10 years. Um, how, to, how to describe it, especially with the name, you know, World Domination Summit, which was not strategic. It wasn't like I had this grand strategy of, like, this is going to be the best name ever. It was more just kind of a, you know, we're going to do this thing. We're going to do it one time, you know. So we're going to call it the World Domination. And then, of course, you know, 10 years later, here we are. Um, so, I, I mean, I just tend to describe it as a, a gathering of, of remarkable people. I like what you just said about, you know, not all like-minded, mm-hmm. but open-minded. Uh, we're, we're there to look at the question, how to live a remarkable life in a conventional world. And we do that in a lot of different ways, from main stage mm-hmm. talks to lots of workshops and breakout sessions and just a lot of meetups that the community itself hosts. Yeah, Awesome. We'll put a link to that in, in the show notes as well, Chris. I want to acknowledge you for doing something meaningful for the world, helping people solve problems, and uh, just being an all-around amazing person. Thank you so much for Amen. doing the podcast thank you so much. today. We're really thank grateful. You. Thanks, Chris. And thank you, patrons. We love each and every one of you. You guys are awesome. <laughs> Thanks, y'all. Love people. Use things. We'll see you next time. Bye. The Minimalists. <laughs>